Okay. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone for dialing into our SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance speaker session entitled Game Theory Applications to 21st Century Deterrence. And especially today's speaker, Mr. Damon Coletta, for taking the time to present. Um, so for everyone who's dialed in, received the bio and slides, slides that I sent out in an in event invitation. And if you haven't received his materials, feel free to email me, and I will make sure to send those over to you. Um, so now I'm going to briefly turn the floor over to Ms. Jenna Vigil from the US Stratcom to provide today's introduction. So Jenna, over to you. All right, good morning again. Like I said, I'm an intern at the Academic Alliance. The purpose of the US Stratcom Deterrence and Assurance Academic Alliance is to develop an academic community of interest focused on research and analysis of deterrence, assurance, and associated strategic level national security themes. The Alliance seeks to stimulate this research to promote collaboration among academic and military members and to encourage development of national security professionals to meet future research, analytic, and decision-making requirements. Through this US STRATCOM SMA speaker series, the Academic Alliance seeks to provide a forum for members to share and discuss research. Today, we welcome Dr. Damon Coletta, a professor of political science at the US Colorado At the Academy Eisenhower Center, Dr. Coletta co-edits the peer-reviewed journal Space and Defense and develops courses on American government, international relations, and national security. He also represents the Department of Political Science for the U.S. Air Force Academy's nuclear minor, offered jointly with the Department of Physics and for the STRATCOM Academic Alliance. Dr. Coletta, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks very much. It's good to be with you all again, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to uh, try to answer a question that's been circulating around uh, various communities. And that is whether uh, game theoretic modeling uh, has any future in policymaking for deterrence. And you, I think most of you have my slides, and uh, I would love to go through those. And um, after that, you guys can talk about things that were unclear. And I, I would be especially grateful for that because you are a broader audience than I'm typically speaking to. And so helping me uh, clarify my arguments um, w would be uh, something that you could uh, do for me today. And uh, also uh, ideas for um, applications that I haven't thought of. So let's get started with the, the first slide. And um, I'm not sure uh, how broadly we're speaking here, but that first question, what is game theory? Um, we, you can get a formal definition. Uh, in the literature, but I wanted to talk about game theory today as a solution concept. And I wanted to tie uh, game theory to something that is more familiar, which is analysis of the market. And so I'm, I tend to be optimistic on this question. Uh, to me, if you're asking whether game theory is relevant to deterrence, that's kind of like asking whether uh, the theory of the market and market analysis is relevant to uh, the macro economy. And so I think it puts us in the right frame of mind in terms of when we're looking for connections between what's going on in the development of game theory and challenges for 21st century deterrence. What is the, the uh, connection? Well, you, I think you could take game theory and start with the assumptions of the market, that's that fundamental supply and demand curve. And what's happening is that as you move from market analysis to game theory, uh, you are changing the relationship between payoffs to the players and the strategies that they choose. For example, when you're in a classic market analysis, 
you're talking about many different consumers and, and uh, many different suppliers. So the decision that any one of them makes doesn't change the overall price. The difference between market analysis and game theoretic analysis is whether or not the player, any a particular player buys or sells does affect the price. It affects the payoffs of the other players. Um, the game theory is often accused of oversimplifying uh, human decision-making in order to get a mathematically tractable answer. But if you think about it, market analysis also makes those simplifications in order to get tractable answers, and it's still quite useful. Rather than the ideal consumer that's necessary for market analysis, game theory merely moves to the ideal strategist in order to make its models mathematically tractable. So as long as it's understood what the simplifications are and what the implications might be, it's still possible for game theory, even after the simplification, to offer some useful insights. And uh, to uh, answer the criticism that, well, our strategists are not ideal. If we, if we look at the strategists that uh, the United States has faced in the past, uh, oftentimes uh, they're accused of being irrational or monsters or inhumane. And so game theory, the usefulness of game theory is that it takes our adversaries and it asks, what if they are crazy like a fox? What if there is an instrumental rationality to what they're doing? And uh, it's the preferences that we don't quite understand. And if we assume instrumental rationality, could game theory help us understand what the, better understand what those preferences might be or what their strategic goals might be? So I have some examples there. And uh, with those names on the slide, I recognize that I am a, uh, a federal employee, but today's presentation is purely academic. It does not involve any information from uh, where many of you are working uh, inside the actual policy-making apparatus. So this is, these are entirely uh, academic comments today. Um, moving on to uh, other ideas about game theory. We've talked about it as a solution concept that is related but not identical to market analysis. It's also a spine or uh, a lens to narrate what's going on uh, in historical cases. I have some examples there on the slide. Uh, one po possible use of uh, game theory is to take behavior that we think is counterintuitive or crazy or monstrous and see if there might be an underlying rationale to that behavior. And I'll just throw out uh, some uh, one classic example and one obscure example. So um, to, to see how this works, if you're just getting into game theory, I, I would recommend uh, Samuel Popkin's Rational Peasant from 1979. And it's funny because that that question from the post-Vietnam era, there's always a version of that question that's relevant to t today after uh, the, uh, the global war on terror. Um, why did the rebellion in, in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s, why did it appeal to peasants? And the, the uh, conventional argument there was that, well, there was, uh, it was an emotional response. The peasants were joining the rebellion because there was a violation of norms and traditions, and so they were willing to uh, risk their lives, risk their, uh, all of their uh, 
possessions risk their stability to go and join the movement. And what Popkin did is he tried to use game theory to say, well, maybe it was an emotional decision, but there's also this idea that there's a political economy and that the peasants are looking, when they're deciding whether to join the, the Viet Cong, they are um, assessing short-term risk versus long-term gain. And so while the uh, the idea of betting their lives and their families on the Viet Cong might seem irrational and emotional in the beginning, Popkin, looking at game theory, thinking about game theory, develops a political economy for why that decision might be rational. Um, it, it's also useful if you have uh, counterintuitive outcomes. So this trusted guardian is a work that I've did. It's, it's um, much less prominent, but I use the tools of game theory to talk about why something that maybe should have happened didn't happen. And this is information sharing among allies in crisis uh, leading up to uh, the war in Iraq. So there were certainly deterrence calculations involved at that time. And uh, the outcome was suboptimal for both Saddam Hussein's Iraq and in terms of the costs of the war for the United States. So how did, if we assume instrumental rationality on both sides, how did we get to a suboptimal outcome? And uh, if you think about the game theoretic model for a crisis, uh, one of the things that it points out is that it's not just capability uh, that matters in crisis bargaining, it's also resolve. And so in terms of trying to explain why something that maybe should have happened didn't happen, you can use game theory to say, you can game theory to highlight possible explanations for that. Maybe the policymakers at that time were thinking, when they were making their decisions and bargaining with Iraq, they were thinking about the capability ratio and putting less emphasis on the resolve issue. They didn't need the allies, for example, for capability. They already had um, a, a great capability advantage, and so they overlooked perhaps the possibility of increasing information sharing with those allies, the, the, uh, at least in the unclassified realm. Uh, the communication among allies before the war in Iraq was uh, notoriously poor, and so that may have affected the perceptions of resolve during the crisis, and game theory actually has insights about what happens when perceptions of resolve change one way or the other. So it's a possible reason for the suboptimal outcome in a crisis as recent as the one before the Iraq war. So to summarize there, Game theory is a solution concept that evolves out of uh, market analysis, which is generally accepted as being useful, and it helps us um, look at historical cases through a different lens that can potentially bring insights. In the in the uh, the term in the trade is called the analytic narrative uh, in academia, probably not in the policy community. Um, so, despite these potential uses of game theory for analyzing our deterrence policy, there are a lot of critics. And here I'm relying on uh, a report that is, was in Nicole's uh, announcement for this talk. It's, it's coming out of um, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And uh, they did a report on game theory and its application to the um, crisis in deterrence or the um, potential breaking down of deterrence in Northeast Asia. And in that report, they talk about the application of game theory in general, and so I'm drawing on that uh, here. The critics of game theory today from policymakers is that 
in order to get that solution that I talked about, the proofs of, of the equilibrium are very esoteric. Policymakers aren't generally going to be that interested in the symbolic language. So the language is obscure. Um, game theory makes assumptions about preferences and how they change as other players employ different strategies. Those are often wild assumptions, wild simplifications, and so that makes policymakers uncomfortable. And then the, uh, the mathematically tractable games are often two-player games, and policymakers, when they're trying to solve complex situations, don't see the relevance of simple two-person games to, to their situation. Um, there's probably, the, the, there is no response to those valid criticisms. There's no foolproof response to those valid criticisms. Um, so the idea is that maybe uh, the communities are miscommunicating a little bit because the the usefulness of game theory will not necessarily be in answering a specific question from the policymaker on a specific date for a specific situation. It's going to look more at tendencies across many cases of deterrence failure, cases across space and across time as well. So it's really a connective logic. It's not something that you put it into the computer and it pops out a specific solution. And that many of these same criticisms, by the way, uh, would be true of political science in general, and yet we continue to educate uh, our future leading citizens in political science before they reach the policy world, and of course our officers in applied military history applied military history before they go to command. So the the main response may not be, well, yes, if we develop this tool, we're going to give you a formulaic answer. It may be an expectations management game where it's possible that this tool could help you connect what you're working on today to what's been worked on in the past and what may be coming down the pike tomorrow. Um, particularly if you're asking about the question of deterrence. Um, when you're looking at very high stakes, you can get insights from game theory as well as market analysis, and you don't necessarily need uh, the, the heroic assumptions and the precision that uh, some of these proofs involve. Um, also, if you're interested in building institutions, new institutions, new arrangements to try to find areas of cooperation with adversaries in a deterrent situation, the example I have down here is arms control. It is uh, very helpful when you're in the design stage for those institutions to imagine, okay, if we're all abiding by instrumental rationality, what institutional design would make sense? Because if the institutional design that you come up with doesn't make sense, if it doesn't meet that minimum criteria that instrumentally rational players could in fact cooperate according to the institution, then it's probably not going to work in real life. So. For social institutions, game theory can help uh, identify necessary design criteria, even if it can't always give you necessary and sufficient uh, criteria. Um, the other thing is that w when I talked about uh, narratives before and finding insights into the description of cases that have already happened, uh, having that game theoretic spine gives you a logical clarity and a, and a, a kind of deductive accounting to say, well, if do my conclusions make sense based on my assumptions? Uh, a key example here from academia is an article by a fellow at Stanford, James Fearon, who 
did this exercise in terms of figuring out the causes of war and why deterrence breaks down, why bargaining breaks down if war is costly. And what he did is he looked at classic cases where the, the explanation was, well, it was uncertainty about the consequences that led this war to happen. And he talked, he, he went and he did a game theoretic model underlying those historical cases. And he said, yes, uncertainty is involved. But if you look at the logic, if you look at how um, the pieces fit together, uncertainty by itself should not be enough to make marketing break down if our players are following instrumental rationality. There has to be more to it. And so his, his game theoretic article, even among non-game theorists, started inspiring research to say, well, why would states that are facing a costly war, why would they misrepresent their resolve? Why would they overplay their resolve? What are the reasons for that? And so um, having that logical clarity helps improve our explanations for why deterrence may have broken down in the past. And finally, um, as a way of managing expectations for how game theory can help us, it may be useful to think about game theory as one of many tools that can give us insights for applied history. And here I, I think the best uh, explanation of this is um, from Alexander George on, on bridging the gap and, and policy-relevant knowledge, how academia can help policymakers. And in his portfolio or his suite of the types of knowledge, he talks about um, big data and empirical cases and testing those for figuring out the conditions under which certain policy instruments, say a very firm signal to an adversary, are more or less likely to be successful. So he talks about empirical data. He also talks about specialized knowledge from our area specialists to see when it might uh, be prob more, more or less probable that specific leaders from a, a particular part of the world or from a unique strategic culture, when they might when there might be miscommunication between them and the United States on a deterrence question or when there might be an overreaction on the other side. The third element, though, that complements inductive empirical knowledge and specialized knowledge is, in fact, the deductive logic underlying these narratives that we've been talking about. And what's especially uh, helpful by adding this deductive logic to the suite of policy-relevant knowledge is that it helps, again, to connect that policymaker, that policy manager that is working on a specific urgent problem, connect to other problems, connections that they might not otherwise see or have time to see that have occurred uh, previously or have occurred in different places or have occurred in, in at different contexts. So the logic of a deterrence problem in the security sphere might be similar to a logic that's happening for a trade war for example, in the economic sphere, it's to be able to make those connections to, to derive insights into improving current policy. Okay, so what, the, what I've I've introduced the uh, concept of game theory. I've tried to tie it to um, market theory and market analysis, and. Uh, try to manage expectations saying it's going to be helpful as a connective tissue, it's going to be helpful indirectly. We shouldn't expect it to solve particular problems today, the North Korea problem today. Um, now, uh, to to wind this up, I, I put some examples from yesterday where I think game theory has made a contribution, where I think game theory might make a contribution in the future, and then just some kudos to uh, people who are searching for applications today. So first, uh, 
some of the contributions from yesterday. If you're thinking about the deterrence policy in the past, uh, a great um, example of how game theory can provide that deductive spine for looking at a bunch of deterrence cases across the Cold War is Powell's book uh, from 1990 on deterrence theory, the search ability. The insight gets from doing a brinksmanship game alongside a limited war game is that um, the logic of these, neither one is perfectly satisfactory. And so if you investigate his logic in that 1990 book, you can kind of see the downside to brinkmanship. I think that's uh, relatively obvious, but also the downsides to limited war. So even if you manage to build a force structure that has a response to everything that the adversary might do, um, there are still uh, disadvantages to that because the um, ultimate mutual assured destruction is somewhat off the table because there's a proportional response to every possible move. So instrumentally rational actors will use limited strikes. Without that fear, they'll use limited strikes to bargain. And so this thing will go on for a lot longer than mo the logic of it will go on for a lot longer than most uh, risk-taking examples. So neither, neither of these forms of deterrence brinkmanship or limited war uh, is satisfactory. And what you see, or w w one way of looking at that, is that narrative plays out in actual history because the policymakers, as you cross presidential administrations, are going back and forth between um, competition and risk-taking or uh, a much more um, uh, elaborate uh, nuclear force structure was all, giving the president all kinds of options, much more expensive and much more elaborate force structure. There's a back and forth between which one of these deterrence logics is superior. And that uh, Powell definitely gives insight onto that uh, train of history. Another um, application from yesterday is uh, Jervis's stability-instability paradox. It's another example that the uh, John Hopkins report uh, referenced in our in our advertisement today. It's another one that comes up there as well. And the idea there is that um, if you look at the game theoretic model and you've managed to uh, reduce the risk of things going completely out of control, you've opened up the field for military competition at lower levels, so instability at lower levels. Stability at the high level actually incentivizes instability at the low level. That gives you insight into the historical narrative. There's, um, there's a famous article in, our, in, our, in academia in our field by uh, Scott Sagan over at Stanford and Jeremy Suri talking about Nixon's madman theory. And so there, as, as, uh, as Kissinger and Nixon are working on detente and as the possibility of a general strike fades, the, the problem of Vietnam becomes more difficult, instability at lower levels becomes more difficult, and you see uh, the Nixon administration contemplating a madman theory, a madman strategy, uh, moving back to brinksmanship. It explains how that uh, policy, uh, um, how that type of policy thinking might have come about. Um, the last example is I put a star by it because it's subtle, but it just shows you how broad the um, game theory contribution has been in the past. Sam Huntington's a classic. Many of you on the line will have heard of Soldier in the State, and he's famous for uh, thinking about American civil-military relations. But if um, I do interpret him uh, a little bit differently. When, when we teach him in class, we always talk about how the Soldier in the State ends with 
uh, this comparison between West Point and Highlands Ranch. But Highlands Ranch, uh, Highland Falls, New York, the city outside of, of West Point. But if you look at the very last paragraph after the comparison between West Point and Highland Falls, you see game theory and deterrence brought together in the closest way possible. So if you'll indulge me for just a second. His last words in, in classic soldier in the state are, upon the soldiers, the defenders of order, rests a heavy responsibility. The greatest service they can render is to remain true to themselves, to serve with silence and courage in the military way. If they abjure the military spirit, they destroy themselves first and their nation ultimately. If the civilians permit the soldiers to adhere to the military standard, the nations, and this is where deterrence come in, the nations is plural. So he's thinking about the deterrence situation, the two scorpions in the bottle, which is becoming apparent in the mid-1950s. And he's looking at how the leaders of the USSR and the United States are taking military advice. And he's saying that if those leaders, their state ideology is very different from conservative realism, but if those leaders can somehow have the empathy to listen to that military advice, then the success of deterrence uh, actually increases. So in, in the most dramatic possible terms, if the civilians permit the soldiers to adhere to the military standard, if they learn how to accept military advice, the nations themselves may eventually find redemption and security. Deterrence will succeed, and case, mutual deterrence will succeed. Um, they will find redemption and security in making the standard their own. Making the standard their own has been a very controversial idea because it sounds like Huntington is saying that America should become fascist or militarized. But uh, I don't interpret it that way. I interpret it as, as, a, as a principal agent problem, as a game theoretic problem. And the president, as principal, has, will tend to have a different ideology, uh, will have a different basis of power as a popularly elected leader than his professional military advisors. And so... The, uh, the principal agent problem points to the possibility that the military advisors will use the um, political tools available to them uh, in the American system to try to make sure that their advice is heard because they're concerned that the civilian is thinking differently. And what Huntington is saying there is if there's empathy between the president and the top military advisors – then the military won't have to reach for political tools, that the communication of military advice, which tends to be different from political advice, will have the proper weight in deterrence decisions at the highest level. And so um, thinking about a classic like Huntington, who certainly would not consider himself a game theorist, in terms of the principal agent model, which is one of the tools of game theory, I think it gives you insight in what he's talking about and a possible way to... Uh, work on civil-military relations as a way of strengthening deterrence. So it's a different way of thinking about game theory's contribution to 21st century deterrence. I see that we are getting very close to um, 13.30, so let me just do one of the bullets on uh, tomorrow, and then I will um, give some kudos out on that last slide. So... You can ask me about any bullet here, but uh, in thinking about the future, um, I've seen literature on everything that I've talked to you about so far. But uh, one thing that um, may be happening in the future is a connection between two initiatives. You have the 
the initiative exemplified by Stratcom Academic Alliance and the Johns Hopkins report that are looking at applications of game theory. Uh, at the same time, you have other entities that are looking at game play and simulations, where, it, where it's in the wargaming tradition, you have role-playing going on, and um, each player is given a certain play, but there is no Nash equilibrium solution that is published, and you let them just play it out, and you gain insights that way. Uh, when you do game play, uh, you need the players need to have a typically they need to have a relatively common conception of the scenario that's underlying the game in order to get the most insights out of it. I think that's true for war gaming as well as political military gaming or strategic gaming. Um, so question I'm asking for the future is wouldn't wouldn't it make sense to connect game theory to game play so that when you're devising those initial scenarios, they might actually have an Ash equilibrium and then um, play the scenario using game play, using role play, and see how and why the outcome of the game play compares to the Nash equilibrium of the game theory. So that's uh, those are two initiatives that are already in play. Connecting them might be a future way that game theory could serve uh, 21st century deterrence. And finally, that last slide is just some kudos to people who are reaching out and trying to bridge the gap between ideas that are percolating in academia and problems that are facing our policymakers and our policy managers. So uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, DOD MORES, uh, the Operations uh, Research Society. It is a parallel community with some overlap with uh, Stratcom Academic Alliance, and they tend to be more concerned with how uh, techniques like game theory could be used to solve today's problems. Um, so communication with their direct and urgent concern with other groups that are thinking more long-term and also a um, broader application that might be useful if those two communities could get together. Um, Minerva is a research program that I Someone can correct me on this. I think it's uh, the ideas are mainly coming coming out of the Office of the Secretary of Defense. They're reaching out to R1 schools and they're trying to get presentations to filter those ideas at least it, at the level of um, the Office of the Secretary of Defense for policy, at least at the level of the Undersecretary. We've um, already mentioned Johns Hopkins and their reports and their interest in this matter. Um, also today. Uh, you're reaching out to professional military education. I heard some people coming on the line. You've got the pre-commissioning level where I am. Uh, we tend, we do collaborate and communicate with the intermediate levels and the senior levels. Uh, PME is also a node between academia, kind of a midway point between academia and policymakers. We are interested in communicating to the literature in academia, but we live and we teach and we, we take our sabbaticals with policymakers. So in terms of improving the communication and expectations management that I talked about earlier, we could possibly uh, play a role. Um, the concluding theme is expectations management, and in order to do that, in order to get the most out of game theory, I know it exists out there from, from my interviews and from talking to policymakers, but to really take advantage of those opportunities uh, at lunch on a Friday where there's some bureaucratic slack to allow some of these ideas to, uh, to seep in. So 
Um, if you allow those ideas to seep in, then you get more of the folks who have very full inboxes and are solving the day-to-day -day problems think of deterrence as a vocation. And a vocation is kind of like what Huntington talked about. It's a body of expertise. It's uh, self-identification with others in the vocation. And it's this idea of a professional responsibility to connect today's problems to what's going on in other places and what's happened at other times. Nicole, I think we're a few minutes over, so I'd like to open it up for questions. Okay, thank you.